Our newest alternative power technology is perhaps the most exciting as Patterson UTI expands the use of lithium-ion battery technology in our rig fleet. EcoCell is an energy management system that uses stored energy to decrease the number of generators needed online and keeps generators running in their most efficient power-to-emissions ratio range. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. That's it? Come on. Dare I say the live cast. So just remember a train wreck. You were always glad that you were there and you saw it. So we're going to do tonight, we're going to have a lot of fun. I think some shots will get fired. I've been talking to to the guests tonight. I think some shots will be fired. But I've also got four of the best energy experts on the planet up here. So we're going to do some serious energy talk, too. Before we jump into that, one thing I wanted to say just real quick, and bottom of my heart, all sincerity, thank you guys so much. Uh, April 27th of 2020, literally a shitty day. I got the boot. I knew that the firestorm was going to happen in the press, all that. COVID happened. I'm hanging out at my house by myself in Richmond, which not the greatest place in the world to hang out by yourself. And anyway, so the fact you guys embraced the podcast, gave me a platform, let me speak, supported it. Colin's sitting there, so I'm going to say it. Making it the number one podcast on the Digital Wildcatters Network. I really appreciate that. And I mean that a lot. So thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Seriously, I meant that. And in fact, I'm actually glad to be here tonight. Uh, I don't know if you guys know, but I've been really, really sick for the last month or so. And I'm really glad I recovered from monkeypox. Oh, you think that's bad? I gave the monkey the clap. (laughs) Okay, that's my one joke. I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. All right, Kevin, give us a theme song. Let's rock it. All right, guys. Before we get started and I introduce these guests to you, let's give it up for Patterson and the EcoCell for sponsoring tonight's podcast. Brad, hold this just a second. I got to show you this. I don't know if it'll work because the lights are so bright, but they actually made me a hoodie, has my face on it, and it glows in the dark. There you go. If they can power a Chuck Yates hoodie, they can power the fuck out of a drilling rig. That's all I'm saying. So thank you, guys. All right. My first guest... He's a UT graduate. He joined Raymond James in 1995, where he was a longtime research analyst known for his incredibly bullish and incredibly bearish calls on commodities. He was always directionally right, maybe didn't get the timing right. 
but he was always two, to his kudos. Two years never made a difference to my clients. It's just <laughs> two years off. And the only thing higher than his cholesterol was me at Coachella last year, Marshall Atkins. Straight down from Canada, our favorite Canadian. She was a longtime top-rated energy research analyst in Calgary. Guys, I hate to say this, she's 10 times smarter than all of us put together, and she's also responsible for half the global warming. Stacy McDonald. My next guest, fellow Rice graduate, co-founder and portfolio manager at Recurrent Investment Advisors. He's also living proof that having a heart on is not personal growth. Brad Olson. <laughs> and my last guest, he's a Harvard man. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a longtime energy investor, a veteran of both BlackRock and Morgan Stanley. Now CEO of an energy transition company, he doesn't like baseball very much, but he doesn't mind being high and inside. Ahmed Atwan. <laughs> All right, Marshall, you're the elder statesman of this panel, the wise one. Tell us what the hell's going on in Europe. Europe's screwed. Europe <laughs> is screwed. You know, multiple policy problems, you know, starting with, oh, yeah, let's switch everything to wind and solar and renewables. But you, you also marry that with uh, the fact that, that uh, Russia was their sole source of natural gas, not their sole, but their large source of natural gas. When those two things don't work, you got a big problem. And industry's going to shut down. They're going into a massive recession because they do not have enough energy. And if you don't have energy, you don't have an economy, period. Wow. So, Stacy, you Canadians are the nicest people on the planet. Y'all really are. Do you know why Canadians don't participate in group sex? That's news to me. <laughs> Whoa. Oh. My punchline of it takes too long to write all the thank you notes pales to your punchline. But in terms of Marshall saying that about Europe, was that Yankee arrogance? That's the Americans lecturing to Europe. Do you Canadians see it that way? How do you see it? Um, no, I think that's fair. I mean, Canada's obviously a little bit left of center of the United States and probably a little more heavy into the environmental stuff. So if we didn't have, if we weren't, exporting energy, we would probably be facing the same problems because our policymakers have a similar view as Europe. In terms of ESG, it tends in stringency, it tends to go like Europe, Canada, and then it filters into the US. You know, Europe's a mess. Does it probably stop some crazy policy happening in the US? Maybe. It probably stops some of that filtering down. The odd part of that is, doesn't Canada win if the world's actually warming? <laughs> if we could produce it and get it to market, yes. But I mean, if you look at what Canada produces on a resource base, it's actually very similar to Russia in terms of agriculture and energy composition and all that. So we could be a replacement, a secure, friendly replacement for Russia, but we can't get our product to market as quickly as we should. So we can't be there to support that. And is that your government not building infrastructure? Is that not? 
It's certainly not a, a reserve base. I mean, we have almost as much proven reserves as Saudi Arabia in the oil sand. So we have the resource to back it up. We, we haven't been able to get it to market. We haven't been able to effectively build big things to get the resource to market. But that I would say to investors or people watching this, that's kind of an old news story now that's changed in Canada. We're going to have LNG finally. And then when Trans Mountain comes on, we're actually going to be overpiped. So our differentials should go down. So it's getting better. It's just very slow. I want it noted for the record. I am showing maturity when you said overpiped. Yeah, I haven't. Yeah. (laughs) So, so Brad, you're a long only investor in energy. You're watching Europe. I'm sitting there looking at S&P percent of the S&P 500 earnings that Europe's like 15 percent. And it's even bigger for the FANG stocks. If you look at Facebook, Google, all this, I mean, and they've had to make the decision. Do we keep people alive or do we shut down industry? I mean, can they bring us all down? Can this literally be global recession? You know, it's a good question. I think historically, when we look back at, you know, call it all the recessions since the Great Depression, you have earnings declines of 20% in a recession. And right now, Wall Street is looking for 10% earnings growth next year and 20% earnings growth into 2024. So obviously, even if you're in the camp that says we avoid a recession, 20% growth from here seems pretty optimistic. And so I think that that downgrade of the outlook for European companies, that the downgrade of the outlook for, for tech companies, you know, that's all going to contribute to generally EPS estimates coming down. And, you know, frankly, to have strategists out there looking for 20% earnings growth as we're seeing kind of the world materially slow down. We're seeing Facebook go negative growth, Google go slowing or X growth. Like it would just be nice if those strategists would cut the earnings estimates now, get the kind of puke out of the way, and then we can go back to, you know, a more normalized market. But we haven't gotten there yet. So, Ahmed, I was out in Berlin this summer with my kiddos. By the way, if I ever get a second life, I hope to come back as one of my kids. Yeah, let's go hang out in Europe. Okay, sure. So anyway, we were in Berlin, and what was interesting is we would get in a taxi. We'd talk to the taxi driver. You're in a restaurant. You're talking to the staff, shopkeepers. Literally no one in Germany was griping about fuel costs, talking about energy. It was like they were oblivious to it. And I tweeted that out one day. I just, you know, hey... The answers I got back were, one, maybe the German government is subsidizing energy costs, so it's being lost uh, on the public. And then the other thing I heard back is they may just be so freaking austere that they'll just pay it, shut up, and do their duty. Any insight on Europe of, you know, Marshall saying it was the overbuild of uh, renewables – are they getting it? Is a discussion happening? Is there any chance for a change? A great question. So small world, you mentioned that. My parents actually met in Berlin, so I wouldn't be here if it weren't for that city. Um, my mom was doing her junior year abroad from uh, Miami of Ohio, and my dad was this random guy from the Middle East, and they hooked up, and uh, the, the rest is history. So the uh, so Romance really, is alive on yeah, the uh, exactly. Chuck Yates' job podcast. <laughs> um, 
But I actually, I was just in London two uh, weeks ago and I was in Europe for a month this summer. I agree with you. It's kind of, there's a disconnect between the average person and how they think about the energy crisis and what to do and, and how to solve it and what the actual facts are. I mean, uh, when, you, when you look at the, the stats, 90% of Poland's gas comes from Russia, 50% of Germany's, and they um, don't seem to think that the solution on the ground that I've seen anyway is the, all of the above that I think a lot of us would advocate. It's just more renewables. So I think there's a disconnect to what I hear the conversation in Houston where everyone says, oh, the Germans are now learning their lesson. They're going to have to diversify more. Uh, I was just there. I was just there. And they're going the other direction saying we need to go faster in the renewable direction. Um, we have a short term problem now, but it's not going to solve like our long term issue of dependency. We don't have our own product here. So it's um, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out, uh, you know. Uh, the, the economic fallout is ultimately going to hurt a lot of the citizens of these countries. But again, there's a disconnect between that and what they think the solution is. They don't think the solution is, okay, let's, let's build more LNG import terminals. They say, we just didn't go hard enough on renewables. And I mean, I'm kind of in the camp, but I want your take on it. Based on physics, what God said happens down here on earth when it was created can renewables actually solve their issue? I mean, I, I don't think even if someone only invests in renewables now, not in the in the short or medium term, um, you need long duration battery storage. That's a game changer to make uh, renewables uh, base load source, but they're no, nowhere near that. So they do need the natural gas um, imports. And I think what might break sooner than people think is the European countries' attitudes toward Russia and Russia-Ukraine, because at some point they're going to just want that gas, right? So I see that breaking maybe before the five years is going to take for us to export LNG, um, extra LNG, and to build no LNG facilities to Europe. Gotcha. So this brings us to uh, the next thing I want to talk about. And Brad, I hate to bring this up, but you came and you co-hosted the BDE show with me one day. Russia was... I, I was told that would be struck from the record. <laughs> Any incorrect predictions or forecasts were supposed to be edited out. No, but, but in fairness, what I like is you, you made your point, and uh, it turned out to be wrong. So Brad Kim's on the BDE show as the Russians are amassing troops on Ukraine. And I go, Brad, you lived in Russia at one point. You're a Russian studies major. What's going to happen? And Brad's answer was, don't worry, Putin's the goth kid that likes to make fun of the athletes. <laughs> and he's not going to do anything. He's just going to do that. He's not going to invade. Well, they invaded. So I saw this on Twitter the other day. Somebody ran a poll and they said, who blew up Nord Stream? And the choices, there were four choices. It was Ukraine, Russia, the United States, and then none of the above. Do you? So I found this interesting. You know who won the poll with like 5,000 votes and granted it's Twitter? was the United States at 38%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so what do you think about Nordstrom? Who blew it up? What impacts that going to have? Yeah, so I put my chips down on the idea that the Russian army were assembling to do the world's largest thriller dance. That, that didn't work. Um, so I'm going to get this wrong, too. Uh, I'm just not a very conspiratorial person. 
I think the truth usually ends up being more boring than kooky online conspiracy theories. And so I think it's probably Ukraine or a third party country. Generally, you know, Putin likes to keep his options open. He likes to have, you know, kind of the silence pistol, the poison bottle, uh, you know, all sorts of weapons at his disposal. And obviously a gas pipeline is one of the weapons at his disposal. I don't see how he gains a lot by eliminate, uh, eliminating optionality from his kind of toolkit. Whereas if you're Poland, and to Ahmad's point, you know, if you're Poland, you're terrified that Germany is going to get soft on Russia and enter into a new energy security deal with Russia. And if you're Poland, you're like, you know what, I'm sick of worrying about whether Germany's going to flip. Why don't I, you know, to quote Keanu Reeves in Speed, I did that on your podcast too, you know, shoot the hostage, take the hostage out of the equation, you know, blow up Nord Stream, take it out of the equation. And, and uh, so I think Poland probably has the most to gain from blowing up Nord Stream. So we've got a Poland take on it. Now, I like this. So, Stacy, the Russians were sitting there blaming on not producing natural gas on a Canadian valve of some sort, right? Who do you think blew it up? I actually thought it was something similar. Like, who didn't want someone to be weak with Russia, so they just wanted to take it out? So my theory was it was either Russia or, or not, excuse me, it was either Poland or Ukraine was what I was thinking. I just, I don't know. I'm not American. I'm not going to, like, get into that, but it just seemed a little bit. It was Canada. It was Canada. She was too nonchalant. And we're, we're going to replace that gas in 35 years, hopefully, if we get something built. So that's our long, that's been our long plan. All right, Marshall, we'll go to the Kennedy assassination next, but uh, where are you on Nord Stream? Any theories? I have no clue. And and nobody has a clue. It could have been Sharif Suki. uh, (laughs) That's the best guess yet. I'm actually going to jump out on the ledge with you, Brad. You're my friend. I'm not going to let you go solo on this, and I've got to give credit to my friend Mark Mills because we discussed this theory over, I believe, five and a half margaritas one night. Mark's theory is that it's the Iranians, because if you think about it, who can replace the LNG? The United States can't. We're exporting all we can. Australia is exporting all we can. Gutter's exporting all they can. But because of the sanctions, there's actually pipeline capacity from the northern Iranian gas fields that get into Europe. Now, you kind of We do long-haul natural gas in the U.S. You kind of got a daisy chain in Europe to get it around. But if you think about it, Iran, in short order, could actually get the gas there. They could actually use it in their negotiations. And what is a core competency of the Iranians? They blow shit up, right? And they do it really well. So that's that's who I'm going to take. You, you got a theory or you're just going to pass on, it, on this? If I had to guess, who, who has the capability and the most to gain from it is the United States. So that's my first choice. Um, second is probably China because it just disrupts things and, and it, it creates chaos in Europe and, and, and suspicion against America, so it plays into their hands. So I'd say those are the top two. Because I, I think one thing is who, who has the capability, um, the, the deep sea, deep water, like explosive capability to do it. It's not like any, I don't think the Polish have it. It's, it's, right? it's they, 250 feet. I mean, I think Brad and I could go get wetsuits tomorrow. And he'll, he'll fly the Polish flag. I'll fly the Iranian flag. Yeah. But I, don't, I, I actually don't think it's that complicated. Now, I've never blown up a Russian pipeline before. Yeah. But. 
<laughs> or have I? There we go. There is a there is a Twitter meme out there with me blowing it up. So so we've decided basically that Russians, I mean Europe's fucked, particularly if they have a cold winter. They're potentially going to bring us all into the Great Depression and kill earnings. One more that. thing on Europe: if if it is cold, then the amount of increased oil demand coming out of there, people aren't talking about. They're not paying attention to, but it could be. Million, million and a half barrels a day more oil demand than certainly we've seen in the last six to nine months. And the crazy thing about that is with them taking all the LNG, you know what we're going to be doing in Massachusetts this winter? Burning heating oil because we actually had very expensive heating oil, very expensive heating oil. And we actually had a day last winter, 25% of all the heating that was happening in Massachusetts was heating oil. In Senator Warren's state, who claims we're polluting the environment. So let's do this. Let's jump over the pond and let's come to the United States now. So let's start off with the midterms. So looking at the midterm elections, I think we're two weeks out. It feels like just listening, seeing polling, uh, polling we're going to see a red wave. I think it's a lock. The Republicans take the House. I think it's likely they take the Senate as well. You look at the governor's races, that's going to happen. So we'll have divided government. Does that matter to our business in any way, shape, or form? And I'm going to go to Stacy first since she's the Canadian. Do you guys care? I mean, I think it matters from a capital perspective because a lot of the policy stuff that's been announced, the companies that participate, I mean, that capital can move, right? And they need stability. So, you know, we can talk about the Inflation Reduction Act and a bunch of things, but people have to make plans on policy and the flip-flopping between like good and bad on things, I think creates the potential for just an overall reduction in investment capital. So, um, you know, you can't have people making business plans and then worried if they're going to change in a couple of years, which is, I mean, if you're looking at the perfect example of that would be KXL, right? I mean, imagine trying to build long haul, long term, any project when you're worried about who's going to be in, in office in two years or four years or six years. It's, it's very challenging. So it'd be nice to take some of the rhetoric out and just get stability for, for people that have to spend long term dollars. I mean, I, it's actually interesting if you go back and look at stock returns, generally speaking, they do the best during divided government when they know the rules can't change, i.e. we may have crappy rules, but at least we know they're not going to change. Marshall, what do you think about the midterm? Feel free to take it into the Inflation Reduction Act if you'd like. Yeah, you know, clearly if, if the Democrats uh, stay in control, then then you've got a huge boon to the green energy, right? I mean, you've seen that with IRA. If, if Republicans take both the House, and so, then, you know, does something get repealed? You know, probably not with Biden there, but two years from now, it may. So it's, uh, I think it's a big deal for clean energy. Uh, I don't think it affects conventional oil and gas at all. The die has been cast when you when you sell off as big a chunk of our strategic reserve as we did, and you're facing the shortage that's that's headed our way for uh, supply, uh, and you get any recovery in demand. You know, oil is going to go up regardless of who's in charge. So, uh, to your point, over time, it's important for investment, but next two years, I don't I don't think anything happens. So, Ahmed, Marshall's right. I mean, when you look at the SPR, we're at our lowest levels since Michael Jackson's Thriller was the number one album. 
I jokingly said the other day to Colin, we've been sucking on the SPR like a fat kid on a Whataburger milkshake. Does it matter? I mean, Are you making it- fun of me? Was that a was that a joke about me? <laughs> you make a cholesterol joke and you get so sensitive, Marshall. So does it actually matter that the SPR is this low? Does it have strategic ramifications? What are you thinking about that? I think it does. I think it's a it's a disproportionate risk that the administration took where if you don't do anything with the SPR, it's not going to really move. I mean, Mar- Marshall knows this better than I do. It's not going to move prices anyway, so you're not really solving the problem. But if you do bring it to a dangerously low level, which it is right now, and there is some unforeseen crisis, we now have no kind of leeway. So I think it was just a horrendous decision all along to do it the first and second and third time. It shouldn't be controversial, but it is controversial. And that's that really the oil and gas industry, if they care about the price of the commodity, should cheer for the worst policy that that they can get. You know, the reality is that the price of oil goes down when you drill for more of it. And so while I understand that, you know, there's obviously the services segment of the oil and gas industry who wants more activity, everybody else should really be anti more activity because prices go up when you have bad policy. Frankly, when we fundraise, I tell people, I say, look, you know, energy in your portfolio is a call option on terrible policy. You don't want good policy. Like when you have good policy and you're drilling everything in sight, the price of a college education, college tuition triples and oil goes down 60%. If that's the outcome we're cheering for, then I guess I don't know what game we're playing, (laughs) you know? And so we we have this conversation a lot where I'm like, you know, the real closet Biden heads out there should really be the oil and gas guys. And obviously I make that as a joke because I read energy finance Twitter and I know that either they're going real deep cover or that is not the case. But uh, yeah, look, I mean, the the reality is today you've got uh, barrels that don't reflect supply and demand getting pumped out of the SPR every single day. The margin for error with supply and demand gets narrower and narrower as you pump more of these non-economic SPR barrels out. If you sell oil, it's a good thing to have this kind of chaotic, incoherent policy, right? Like, I mean, we talked about Europe. I was in Europe in May, and I was having a meeting in Germany where I said, like, hey, you guys freaked out about this? And, like, you know, a guy named Gunter was like, dude, I have a gasoline card paid for by my employer. I don't think about it at all when I fuel my BMW up. My, my boss pays for that. And you think like, all right, now I'm starting to see why you guys don't really care. Like, we have ESG policies. Our, bo- you know, our company pays for our gas card. And like, by the way, why are our diesel prices so high? Well, because to make road diesel with no sulfur, you need a natural gas hydrogen feed into your refinery. Oh, who would have thought? Swipe that gas card again. You know, it's like these are all kind of the the policies that separate people from, you know, the real world outcomes of their decision making, you know, they're bad and they're ugly to read, read in the news and say, man, what a mess. But the reality is, if you want the price of a commodity to go up and you want energy investments to do well, you know, it, it, it always kind of cracked me up. Like a friend of mine who worked at Anadarko was like, you could imagine when Anadarko invited Trump to give a stump speech. And he was like, we're going to unleash every ounce of coal we can find. And everyone in Anadarko was like, we, we wanted this guy, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of always been the conundrum of the energy industry is the energy industry cheers on more supply. 
But we know what happens when there's more supply. It's, you know, the Fed prints a gazillion dollars and oil price still goes down. Maybe that's a little bit uh, cynical, but but it's definitely, uh, it's not a, it's like Marshall said, a lot of this stuff is already in motion, but, uh, you know, a lot of the supply demand challenges are already in motion and, and a, a, a government midterm, you know, election isn't going to change that. But the reality is if you're an energy investor and you say you get more bullish when Republicans take over all, you know, legislative and executive branch, you know, history, history is not really on your side, right? You want a messy kind of incoherent green energy pursuit. I got a guy for you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, You know, and and I've talked to guys in Texas who have kind of whispered like, hey, if Biden comes in and screws everything up, that that might actually be good. And you're, you're like, yeah, I kind of thought that would have caught on by now, I'm but a, I'm on private land. Yeah. <laughs> it's not yeah. that bad. That's right. No, it's it, that's actually right, and that's kind of been the story of the business forever. It's like you can be good for activity, or you can be good for price. You generally can't have both at the same time. Yeah, and final comment I'll make is, you know, on your podcast, uh, you know, a few months ago, we we talked about the '70s a lot. Like 70s were the golden age of the oil and gas industry, the post-World War II oil and gas industry. And what did you have? You had get off the gold standard, windfall taxes, price controls. Donald Rumsfeld said how much you could charge for cornflakes. Like all of these terrible policies. And it was a great time to be an oil and gas investor, relatively speaking. So, Oh, and piss off Saudi Arabia. We're not doing that now. <laughs> right. Right. That's exactly right. So you know, look, a return to the 70s is obviously not great for people who live outside of Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma. But, you know, for the folks who live here, it's it's not a, a bad outcome for energy. Just promise me, promise me we won't print the Frieza Yankee bumper stickers again. I think that set the cause back a, a, a ton. All right, Ahmad, you have a unique perspective on this because you were old school oil and gas guy. You're running an energy transition company. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you energy czar the whole wide world. So what you say goes. And I'm going to bring it to the point of fuse. The whole point of fuse is we're this big, happy family in energy. We've got, it's kind of like a family reunion I went to in Velma, Oklahoma. We've got like racist, drunk grandpa of the oil and gas people over here. We've got, you know, Uncle Bob's third wife, Kathy, who's way too sensitive and talks about AAA too much. She's the renewables. And anyway, how do we get that family to talk together? Because I truly believe if everybody would talk, everybody would share notes, everybody would focus on technology, we could probably lower energy costs 20% if we do it. Am I just off base drinking too much beer? What do you think, Mr. Energy Czar? No, I, 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 uh, and thank you for that hyperbole, but I completely agree with you. It, so I didn't move from uh, traditional energy to renewable energy for ideological reasons. I just saw, um, as Marshall would see, would see, exit multiples in one sector going way up and the other sector going down. And so I thought there was an opportunity to, to capitalize on that. And I also saw a ton of growth in, in renewables. But as, as energy czar, I guess, um, I would have an all-of-the-above policy. I think oil and gas are, are going to be here for our lifetimes and are, are going to grow, not decline. But um, renewables are going to take an increasing market share. 
driven by by uh, societal adoption, ESG pressure, and just government subsidies, right? Which is the tax credits are basically subsidies. So, for example, solar has gone down 80% in cost in the last decade. Wind has gone down um, 90% in the last 15 years. And as I said earlier, the solution that bridges all of that renewable energy together is storage because it allows you to take the sun that shines during the day, the wind that blows at night, and have storage in between that solves it. And by the way, the fastest growing energy storage state, and I think the number one area of, of attractive investment, I think, is, 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 is storage in ERCOT in Texas. We're blessed in Texas. We have the most oil, the most gas, the most wind, and the second most solar after California. It's about to overtake California to be number one in there. So Texas can be a model on how you can actually have all of the above um, providing baseload power um, uh, from natural gas and from renewables as energy storage uh, comes online and then have this huge um, oil resource as well. And, and imports becoming uh, less of a, of a factor. To your point on the, on the conversation, when I go to New York, so this is, so I moved here from New York. When I, when I told people in New York, this is like 2017, that it used to be like 20, 2015, if I told people I worked in oil, I literally had no friends at that party. Like my wife's in, <laughs> you know, she's in fashion, so she had all these friends and they would, kind of put me in the corner, but, but still natural gas, I could defend by like 2015. If you're in natural gas, you have no friends at the party anymore. So now it's 2022. I mean, you're, you're not even invited to the party if they know you're in, <laughs> in, in, in either one of the two. So, and I think that's the wrong way to approach this conversation, right? I think people, people have to like re- reasonable people like who are more centrist have to lead a policy that allows us to have enough of both so that we have a diversified national energy policy that people can agree on. And I think 80% of people are probably in those camps. Like New York is a little extreme. San Fran's a little extreme. You know, certain parts of maybe Texas could be a little extreme on the other end. I think there's, there's, there's got to be like a realistic conversation of meeting in the middle. I, I, th- I think both sources of energy are, are, are necessary for us. And we've been the world's most resilient country and greatest country largely because of our natural resources starting with agriculture. And I think we're now, should be the world's leading like diversified energy player. There's no other country, that, big country that comes close to that. I mean, China doesn't come close. Russia doesn't come close. We're it, right? We're, we're number one. And I think we'll be number one for my lifetime and hopefully you know, kids and grandkids lifetime. Quick, quick follow-up. Does your wife have models that are friends? <laughs> Is that what we mean by fashion? Uh, she, 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 she provides uh, clothing and accessories to, to the models. Ah. She makes them. So they are her. All right, we'll talk. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Is that um, the end of the Mar- podcast now? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> All right, thanks, everybody. Come. Exactly. So, Marshall, anyway. I don't we have get- any model friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you still think your wife married you for your looks. But uh, the can we ever get the narrative back? Can energy is is all does it take all this doom and gloom for us to have a reasonable conversation? Well, it doesn't take that, but the, the, the problem is you've had so much hyperbole over climate change and, and climate Armageddon that's been out there, and that's translated to this I- I- extreme views on, on ESG, and you have to, you know, throw soup on a painting in, in Paris 
and glue yourself to the wall with a hydrocarbon-based product uh, to get attention to, we don't need oil. Like, no, you're going to need a crap load of oil and you're going to need a crap load of gas. To your point, you're, you're going to need it all. Um, you know, developing a model that, that, that allows it all to work together, it'll be interesting if we can pull it off. We didn't do so well in February of 21 on that model where we, we had it all working at the same time. The shit broke pretty bad. One of the, the ERCOT guys I was talking to said, look, we used to have a rule. You couldn't sell electricity in the system unless you could provide it uninterrupted for, for 72 hours, which gets to your point. Great. Build a, a windmill, but pair it with a battery and load all that cost in on a fair basis. The problem is that cost of Germany, where arguably the wind doesn't blow as hard as here and the sun doesn't shine. They were paying 35 cents a kilowatt hour versus a year ago, we were paying seven or eight here in Houston. That You can't compete on a business level, on an industrial level with those kind of expenses. Now, we're going up, but they're going to probably go up a lot more. So, I don't know, long-winded way of answering or not answering your question. I guess I would say, like, whether you prefer traditional energy or renewables, I do think, although we are kind of like lepers for renewable people when you work in traditional energy. I actually think renewable people, instead of looking at us like that, should think about what we can add to their business. Because frankly, I don't think there's a harder business to run than running an oil company. I mean, I know we talk a lot of smack about CEOs being entitled, but let's be real. I mean, if you're losing 30 or 40 percent of your production every year before you even wake up, I mean, show me another business that has to do that. I mean, Apple doesn't have to do that. Facebook doesn't have to do that. And then combine that with an uncertain commodity price. I mean, this is a very hard business to run and we have boom and bust all the time. So if I'm on the, you know, low carbon side or new energy side of the business, I would want to talk to oil and gas people because they've been through the booms and busts of pricing and, you know, interest rates and policy changes. I mean, this is a very resilient business. So I actually think renewable people should spend more time with oil and gas and learning about that because it's not going to be easy for them forever. I know the IRA is easy for a while for them, but it's not going to be like that forever. So they need to learn to handle those ups and downs. If I, if I can add to that, the one other thing um, that renewable people can learn from oil and gas is how to scale things. So there are a lot of funds in, on the coast generally who are developing renewable technology, but they've never scaled these technologies. They've never taken them to a level that actually works. And the oil industry is the best in the world at doing that, right? So, so the, the working with the oil companies, and some of the smart VCs are doing that now, to, to take things like hydrogen and carbon capture and all these things that, that you think are going to be future solutions um, but really don't work unless you scale them. I think that's something the oil industry can really help the renewable industry um, do. So, No, that's a really good point. So, all right, we've got about two minutes left. I'm going to go kind of rapid fire, a couple of questions here, and I'll start with you, Marshall. Marshall, give us a trend that we're not talking about today but we may be talking about a lot in 18 months. I'd start with uh, Iran. Uh, you know, you look at uh, us backing away from the nuclear thing. Everything I read said in the next year they get nuclear weapons. What does Israel, Saudi, and UAE do if they get closer to getting nuclear weapons? I have not heard anyone talking about that in the last year and a half. 
And and if that happens, game over. Oh, holy cow. Stacy, you got a trend? <laughs> this is not um, government related. It's more corporate related, but I know people follow me on Twitter. have heard me harping about this, but the only thing I care about for the next 18 months is inventory. I mean, it's been totally missed from the discussion for the last two years because companies have basically been drinking from a fire hose. But if you're going to a free cash flow model and you want to pay dividends out, you better make sure you have the inventory to back that up for a really long time. Because if you don't, you're going to go in the market and you're going to buy stuff and you're going to dilute your shareholders. So the biggest thing for me is, um, you know, people in the industries need to spend a lot more time digging down on what's actually driving the inventory and how actual deep it is. Cause that's the base of your business model. Because if you get that wrong, you're going to, you're not going to do well on an investing basis. It's return of capital and return on capital. Yeah, yeah exactly. All right, Brad, lay the trend on us. Uh, you know, I think one thing, uh, people focus on, on Russia and they focus on, is Putin going to get overthrown? Are the Germans going to, you know, hug the Russians to the dismay of Ukraine? I, I mean, I think realistically, you have this kind of weird frozen conflict middle ground where, you know, when, when Saddam Hussein attacked Kuwait, he kind of froze himself out of uh, you know, out, out of the global trade system for the remainder of his reign. And yet he said, rather than point the guns at other countries, I'll just point the guns at my own people and hold on to my internal power. Well, what that meant was, you know, Iraq went from a 4 million barrel a day country in 1980 and was significantly below 4 million barrels a day for certain periods of time, less than a million. And it took 30 years to get back to that 4 million barrel a day uh, level. And so, when people talk about Russia, they focus on the, the big headline grabbing outcomes. But I don't think what, what people probably need to think about is what if there's a scenario where Russia becomes this weird, disconnected autocracy where production just slowly bleeds lower? It's enough to keep all the oligarchs, you know, well housed internally. But, you know, you have a meaningful producer on a, on a global scale just missing for a decade or even more going going forward because Putin's pretty good at surviving and and uh you know he doesn't have to die for there to be a huge kind of outsized impact on the oil market and and the gas market for that matter so you know look for a a, a loss for Russia that leads to disruption but doesn't necessarily lead to a, a a nice clean conclusion that people are looking for one way or another got a trend we're going to be talking about yeah, I think we've all been talking about, you know, Russia and Putin and Ukraine and Europe and the U.S. And I think the one that's kind of it shouldn't be sneaky because it's so huge, but it's China. So while we're all talking about all this stuff, they're having their their party Congress and it's turning from an authoritarian to a totalitarian state where the leader can kind of do a lot more than past leaders have been able to do going back to Deng Xiaoping and Mao before that. So what does he do? Um uh, you know, there's, he's, he has stated publicly that he wants Taiwan to be part of China um, and not just the two, the two China policy, a one China policy that's truly um, commit, uh, 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 finalized uh, during his lifetime. And he's in his 70s. So, you know, I think you're going to see a more active China. And I'm not saying they're necessarily going to invade Taiwan the next two or three years, but I think that's a distinct possibility while everyone else is running around doing their, their own thing. Y'all are all wrong. We're going to be talking about the reconciliation between Tom and Gazelle. That will be the big story. All right. 
we literally have one minute before I got to wrap this up. In one sentence or less, where in the energy business are you putting your money for the next 18 months? Battery storage. Oil sands. Oil sands. (laughs) Crude oil contracts. And I will say this. When Marshall took me out to his uh, fishing, hunting camp, he had a group of us around and we were talking. We did the same similar thing. Where are you going to put it? I think oil was at, what, 65, and you said it would be at 125 by the summer. I chose Bitcoin at $60,000. So I'm barred from ever doing this again. The last thing I'll say real quick as we we wrap up, I wrote one joke last night, and I wasn't able to use it, so you're just going to have to hear it. I was hoping somebody would say something where I would look at you and go, man, that's not, I'd rather go to Temple with Kanye. Oh, come on, guys. That's funny. All right. Too soon. Too soon. All right. Hey, everybody. I really appreciate y'all coming out. And let's give a big round of applause to these guys that were brave enough to do this. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you.